The scripture this morning comes from Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful to Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. But this morning, uh, I'm going to ask you to believe something that I think you're going to struggle with. And likely your first response will be to say internally, yeah, but... I want you to arrest those words in your mind and replace them with, okay, Lord, if you say so. To that end, let's pray this morning. Father, you have spoken of your lavish grace that you have bestowed upon us. We need that grace this morning to believe what you say is true. And as always, Father... Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Twice in the past seven days, I have found myself staying up to near 1 a.m. to watch the Cleveland Guardians, used to be the Cleveland Indians, finish off a baseball game. One of those games went 15 innings, and I was just so invested, I couldn't pull myself away. But I love baseball. I love the Cleveland Guardians. And... They are a really fun team to watch. I was having a conversation with my son Jake, and he said, yeah, if you know baseball, the Guardians are just fun to watch this year. Uh, They're not a flashy team in the sense that their budget, their payroll is $66 million, which sounds like astronomical, right? But I think that ranks them at 27 or 28 out of 32 teams. Compare that to like the New York Yankees, the LA Dodgers, the Mets. Those teams are spending $256 million on their payroll, four times. 
So the Guardians aren't flashy. They're actually the youngest team in all of baseball right now. They're younger than every AAA team, except our own. But they just do so much right. They got good pitching. They play good defense. Uh, They hustle. They run from home to first fast. In fact, they lead the majors in infield hits. They steal bases. They get timely hits. They're just fun to watch. And the more you know about baseball, I think the more fun the Guardians are to watch. And it's like that in so many areas of life, right? If you know music, you're likely going to enjoy an orchestral concert more than someone who doesn't. If you know music, you'll likely enjoy an opera more than someone who doesn't. If you know art, I mean, I love going to an art museum. But if you know art, you probably enjoy it and get something more out of it than someone who doesn't. If you know film, you get the idea. Uh, Today we're going to look at the inner workings of our salvation in precision and detail, both the already and the not yet aspects of our salvation with precision and detail. And I hope, my prayer is, that we will appreciate, enjoy, celebrate the beauty of that salvation as a result. This passage, when it was read, there's just so much that I would want to unpack about predestination, about theology or the Trinity, about eternal security, etc. But I am focusing on two words that will lead to two statements that seemingly contradict one another, but in faith, you need to hold them together. The first word is saints. Paul addresses this letter to the saints that are in Ephesus. Here's the statement that I think you're probably going to struggle with initially. We already are saints. Not just will be destined to be saints. We already are saints. What is your reaction to that? Are you thinking, I've already heard that before. Well, then hear it again, right? It's really good news. Hear it again. Are you confused by it? Because you're thinking, well, saints go through this canonization process, and I haven't done any miracles, so I can't stick with me. Maybe you're thinking, ah, that's just religious flattery. Paul doesn't flatter. Uh, that language of being saints, the NIV translates it as holy ones. It is all through the New Testament. It picks up on the theme of the Old Testament where Israel, God's people, were called God's holy people. They were set apart and made righteous for God's purposes. And the New Testament picks up on that language and applies it to us believers, us as the church. And you see it in Corinth. Paul addresses them as saints. You see Paul's letter to Philippi, 
to the saints at Philippi. In Colossia, in Romans, he refers to the saints. The author of Jude calls us saints, as does the author of Hebrews. It's everywhere. That same language of being holy people, of being sanctified, which means made holy. It's the same word, just a different tense or form. That word is all throughout the New Testament. At times, it's used to describe what we are called to be. We are called to be holy ones. We are called to be sanctified. But more often than not, it's used to describe what we already are. In Christ, we are saints. Now, I expect a lot of us struggle with that, to really accept it, really believe it, really internalize it, because we know the Bible. And so many places in Scripture refer to us as sinners. Right? Born in sin, conceived in sin, slaves to sin, enemies of God, constantly indulging the lusts of the flesh. And I think anyone with even a modicum of self-awareness struggles to accept that moniker, saint. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't look in the mirror in the morning and say, oh, you are such a lovely saint. We struggle with it. I'm sure we've, probably most of us have read the story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, probably in junior high school, right? Dr. Jekyll was this brilliant scientist who develops a potion supposedly to separate his base side from his kind of more noble side. And when he takes the potion, he turns into Mr. Hyde, this hideous monster who is murderous. That story is in some ways the Christian story in reverse. We were the hideous monsters hell-bent on evil. And in Christ, we've become something glorious. Saints. How? How can we be saints Well, the beautiful and simple answer is Christ died for us. I love that answer because that is an answer that children can understand. It is simple, but we can unpack it. Let's pop open the hood and look at the inner workings of that salvation. In Christ... We have been justified. Justification, justified, is a legal forensic term that is at the core of any doctrine of salvation. Being justified has both negative and positive elements to it. Negatively, being justified means that sin has been wiped away and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Bob, I think last week, did a phenomenal job unpacking the revolutionary nature of that statement. There is now no condemnation because guilt has been wiped away. 
One theologian said, no condemnation is the banner that flies triumphantly over those who are in Christ. That is beautiful. No condemnation. The guilt has been wiped away. But it's better than that. It's better than that. Imagine you have a huge debt. And that debt is wiped away. But you're left with zero in your bank account. Well, it's great that the debt has been wiped away. Being at zero in your bank account is better than being in the whole $100,000. Right? But Christ doesn't leave us with zero in our account. He, He wipes the debt away. But he gives us his righteousness. It's not that we're left at zero. We're declared not just innocent, but righteous, holy saints. Because his righteousness gets transferred to our account. That's what justification means. Our sins were transferred to his account. That debt was wiped away. His righteousness, his merit was transferred to our account. And we're righteous, holy saints. At the moment of our conversion, we are certainly justified. We're pardoned and accepted by God on the basis of the merit that Christ has put into our account. Yet that's not all that happens. Let's dig around under the hood just a little bit more. Because at the same moment, there is also a decisive separation, a decisive breaking away from the reign and dominion of sin in our lives. So in Christ, we are justified. In Christ, we are also sanctified. Not just declared holy, but sanctified, made holy. We often talk about sanctification as a process of being made holy, of, as the process of being brought more into conformity to the image of Christ. And it is good and right to talk about sanctification in that way, because the Bible does. But the Bible also talks about sanctification as something that has already happened to us. We have been sanctified, or we were sanctified, set apart and made holy by God's decisive act on our behalf. Romans 15 says we were sanctified, past tense, by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that we have been, past tense, sanctified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, we have been washed and sanctified. Again, something that has already happened to us. Now maybe you're saying, well, Dan, I just don't feel very sanctified. I don't feel very holy. I don't feel like a saint. And I totally understand that. Uh, Just not quite two weeks ago, My wife and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, and so we have now crossed the line where we have been married 
longer than we have been single. She has been Lynn Waugh for longer than she was Lynn Rundle, her maiden name. And we were thinking about that, and she said, I remember when we first got married, it was so weird for me to call myself Lynn Waugh. You know, I'd still find myself writing on checks, Lynn Rundle, and scratch it out and note Waugh. Now it would be very odd to think of myself as Lynn Rundle. I don't think I could do that. I don't know how long it took for her to make that transition in her mind. And I don't know how long it will take for us to really, really believe that we're saints. I don't know that it will happen in this lifetime. But when we got married, she was Lynn Waugh, even though she couldn't always remember that. You did remember most of the time, though, I think, right? I hope. We talk a lot in our culture about finding the true you, your true self, you know, reaching out and getting in touch with your inner self, the true you. Let me just encourage you. The true you is the you as God sees you. The you that he created in his image. The you that he knits together in your mother's womb. And especially the you united to his son, Jesus Christ, in faith. The true you is what God sees. And he says, Holy One, Saint, because you are united and clothed in Christ's righteousness. That was the first word, saint. The second word is grace. Paul prays for grace. He says, grace and peace to you. What is grace? We often use the short definition. It's unmerited favor. That's good. It's a good short definition. I want to push it a little further. It's not just unmerited favor. It's favor despite demerit. Have you ever been in a context where you were given demerits? I went to seminary in Springfield, Missouri at a school that gave out demerits. If you didn't live up to the student handbook, the dress code, etc. I lasted two weeks. I'm not joking. I don't know how John Mangrum did four years there. Demerits. Marks against me. The story of grace, the principles of grace work despite demerit. It's not that we just didn't earn it. We positively didn't earn it. This is maybe getting a little too close to Christmas to say this, but the spirit of grace is the exact opposite of the spirit of Santa Claus. Right? So what does Santa Claus do? He makes a list. He checks it twice. 
He's trying to find out who's naughty and nice. And the implication is that the gifts go to the nice. And God says, I've made a list. I've checked it twice. And none of you are nice. No, not one. (laughs) And I lavish my grace on you nonetheless. Grace. Favor despite demerit. We were saved not because of our our inherent goodness or moral perfection. In verse 4 of this passage, Paul says that you were called to be holy, not because you were holy. We were sinners chosen simply because of God's grace. But it's not just that we were sinners. We still are. I mean, he's called these Ephesian Christians saints. But he's also praying for grace. Why do saints need grace? Because while they're saints, they are simultaneously sinners. Those he calls saints are still sinners. He's writing this to the Ephesians. If you fast forward to the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the Ephesian church, you've forsaken your first love. Those people who had forsaken their first love are still saints and simultaneously sinners. He calls Paul, the church in Corinth, saints. And then goes on for 16 chapters to outline their immorality. Of the grossest kind. They're saints and yet still sinners. There is no living saint who isn't also at the same time a sinner. Every once in a while we get pushback from people who don't like the teaching that we are sinners. Or who think Uh, the reproaches of the Good Friday service are maybe overly severe, or our prayers of confession are maybe overly severe. But the Apostle Paul, near the end of his life, writing in a letter to Timothy, says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Not I was. Paul, Saint Paul, was very much in tune with his still sinfulness. I think this is so important because it makes a world of difference in our attitude in our demeanor. Because hear me, you're a saint, but you haven't yet fully arrived. You're half-baked. You haven't yet fully arrived. So strive for holiness. Day in and day out, the hard work of mortifying the flesh, of putting to death the sinful ways, 
the hard work of putting one foot in front of the other and walking the narrow path of holiness. And grace will be there to meet you when you fall, and you will fall. So Paul says, saints, grace to you, because you're going to need it as you strive to live in to what God has made you already, saints. And embracing and understanding that you are still a sinful is a wonderful guard against hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is maybe one of the most frequently leveled charges against Christians and against evangelical Christians, right? Bunch of hypocrites. A hypocrite says, I'm perfect. Do what I say, and then they don't do it. Someone who's in touch with their sinfulness says, I'm not perfect. I'm in process. I'm still a sinner. I'm walking with Jesus. Come walk with me. I'm not perfect, but I'm redeemed. It's a good guard against hypocrisy, and it's fuel for patience and compassion towards other sinners. As soon as we lose sight of the fact that we're sinners, our compassion begins to shrivel in self-righteousness, pride, arrogance, hard-heartedness sprout. There is no room in the Christian life for self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Now, does that mean we can't speak against sin that we see in our culture or, or you know, call out sin among our brothers and sisters? No, it doesn't mean that. We can and we should. But we do it from a place. We do it as one who knows what it's like to labor under the burden of sin and guilt and shame. And who says, come and find the free grace of God. So church, please, before you find your prophetic voice, first get to know your own sinfulness and the tremendous grace of God towards you. Not just when you became a Christian, not just when you first believed, but today, tomorrow, at the very end of your life, you will be dependent on the grace of God. You're a sinner and a saint. You're a saint and a sinner. Embrace both of those. Both our status as holy ones and our growth in holiness are possible by the faith that unites us to Christ. God's declaration that we are righteous, even while we are still sinners, is not some legal fiction. What God says is true, and it's true because of Christ. Already, though not yet finished. Now, if you're sitting there this morning and thinking, saint, I'll never be a saint. 
you're right. On your own. On your own, you cannot erase the debt. You cannot erase the guilt. Nor could you measure up to the law's demands. But Christ. But Christ has done it for you. If you will but embrace that unmerited gift in faith. I'd love to talk to you if you don't know what that means, if you don't know what that looks like, if you haven't yet taken that step of faith, I would love to talk to you about that this morning. Please find me or one of the elders of the church to talk about that even this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, saying thank you for such an amazing grace is not enough. We don't fully comprehend the pit that we were in because of our sin, and so we cannot fully comprehend the beauty of that unmerited grace. But we pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would help us to receive by faith the gift of Christ and his righteousness on our behalf. You do not lie when you call us saints. Even though we're well aware of our sin, you see us clothed in your son's righteousness. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We pray that if there are those among us who do not know the peace of that good news, that you'll be drawing them unto yourself even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.